to episode, I want to say 17. I should have checked that before I started recording, but I didn't because I was just way too excited to get into things. So let's just call it 17. It might not be 17. You know what? It's actually probably 18. 18 feels more close to accurate. Let's roll with 18. I'm joined by a returning guest, one of my favorite people to have on the show. I'm joined by my buddy, Sean. Sean, how does it feel to be back for episode 18 of Shortbox Summary? It feels great. Hello, my fellow nerds. Hope everyone is doing well and you guys are ready for some more fun early 2000s geekdom. Hell yeah. And uh, Sean, I don't know about you. This has happened a couple times on this podcast, but are you having a little bit of deja vu? A little bit. Uh, a tiny little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. W- for reasons that you have already broadcasted, uh, feels a little bit like 18.5 to me. Sure does. I'm an idiot. I set up my mic incorrectly when we recorded last week, maybe even the week before. Time means nothing to me anymore. And uh, it sounded poopy, and I didn't want to have a poopy-sounding podcast. So Sean, super cool, decided, uh, sorry, agreed to come back and uh, let me bother him again with the same X-Men story that we're about to talk about today. But... Before we get into the story, thank you so much for listening. If you made it here, that means you know how to find the show, which means you know how to tell people how they can find the show. Please share the show. The bigger it gets, the more guests we'll have on. Super exciting stuff. I've got some some irons in the fire, Sean. Got some comic book professionals who might be coming on the show pretty soon. I'm really excited about some things that are that are in the works, but a bigger awesome. audience makes that easier. Please rate us on your podcast service of choice. And uh, tweet at the show, at PurpleBird616. Let us know what you think. Let us know what can be improved besides the poopy audio. I know I know that can be improved, which is why we're doing take two. Hey, I love a little bit of poopy audio from time time again because it gives me another opportunity to come talk with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whew. All right. We're leaving the poop behind. <laughs> we're leaving that, Sean. Back with episode 17 or 19 or whatever we tried recording the first time we're here to talk about astonishing X-Men specifically the story danger from issues seven through 12. Uh, Those came out between December 22nd, 2004 and August 31st, 2005. So before we even jump into the show, let's hop in our little time machines. Let's get in our DeLoreans. Let's hit 88. Sean, what were you up to? in December 2004 through August of 2005? I mean, besides trying to uh, perfect the love letters that I would put into lockers or uh, my next outfit for the middle school dance and uh, my cool to the the croc to the angle uh, hats and trying to find a way to buy the next cool neon color hoodie at PacSun. Not too much. Oh, PacSun, you're taking me back, my guy. Yeah, I remember walking by those mannequins and being extremely intimidated by just how cool they looked. (laughs) So much cooler than it looked on my body, but whatever. Yeah, this was around the time I think I remember going to Hot Topic because that was the best place to buy band t-shirts back in the day. And I remember buying, still is, I I haven't been to a Hot Topic in years, (laughs) so I 
it's not that it's not, I'm not poo pooing on, on hot topic. I'm sure it's a great store. I've got some fond memories there. There's just not one near me. Uh, but I remember buying a killer shirt cause hot fuss had just come out like the summer before. Dude. Hot and, fuck, uh, what an album. Yeah, it really is. But, uh, holy crap. I got so much guff from the, uh, the person behind the register who had about eight pounds of piercings in their face and was wearing a slipknot shirt. And, uh, here some dweeby little, Kind of chunky, kind of not, kind of just awkwardly oblong person trying to buy a killer shirt. Got a couple eye rolls and got some attitude for that. But that was 2005. What can you do? So you wouldn't say that they were Mr. Brightside? They were not. <laughs> they they were not. Um, I'm trying to think of another song off that album that I can make a pun about. Uh Jenny was no friend of mine. Let's just let's just leave, <laughs> let's just leave it at that. <laughs> We're here all night, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, that's right. Tip jar in the corner near the piano player. Thank you, thank you, um, Sean. You're a huge music fan, and I've talked about yes, this sir. music semi recently with Aaliyah, but things have changed a little bit. So I'm going to read you the first five on Billboard's top 100. Okay, and uh, let, let's gush about some music. Number one, "We Belong Together" by Mariah Carey. Number awesome, two, "Don't awesome, You." Awesome. Don't you by the Pussycat Dolls featuring Busta Rhymes. Number three, Ponda Replay by Rihanna. That was her first single. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I always thought Disturbia was like the first time she like blew up. And then I, I revisited. I was just like, oh, wait, this song. This was absolutely a huge, inescapable hit. A legend and a queen was born. Yeah. God. And now she's having her first kid now. Can you believe that? Jeez. Yeah, it's just weird that she's been in our lives for 17 years, but God, I'm so happy that she has been. Uh, what's your favorite Rihanna song before we move on to the next? Um, Probably You to One. Okay. Um, Or Bitch Better Have My Money. Okay, I'm either a uh, only girl in the world kind of guy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or uh, We Found Love with Calvin also Harris. Good. Just straight up bops. It just makes me want to go so fast on the highway whenever those songs come on. Now, if anybody wants to, they can tweet at me and fight me about this. But I will say she might have the most range in terms of uh, genre out of any pop star. I'd probably agree with that. Yeah, she's... She's got some A's, she's got some B's, she's got some C's, and I don't mean that in terms of quality, I just mean that in terms of having a, a bag full of clubs, you know? Jams. Yeah, God, Jam City. Uh, number four, Let Me Hold You by Bow Wow featuring Omarion. Number <laughs> five, You and Me by Lifehouse, as featured in Cinderella Story, starring Hilary Duff and Chad Michael Murray. I distinctly remember uh, a slow dance in middle school to that one. Yeah, I was uh, I was in high school at this point, and um, there was so much ceremony about middle school dances because they were always held in like the gymnasiums and they were open to like every school. And so like there's four or five elementary schools near me. And so it'd be like, OK, this month, the school dance is in Bar Harbor. So like they would get the money. And then like the next month, it'd be like, OK, this one's in Tremont. So they get the money. Um, and then in by the time we got to high school, they stopped doing it in the the gym because the gym was huge because it was like an actual like the high school was built for like all these disparate elementary schools in different towns and they just started having them like in the cafeteria 
which was such a considerably smaller space. I've gone to my fair share of cafeteria dances or mixers as we call them. And I was a Catholic schoolboy, and then in high school went to an all-boys school. And when we go to the all-girls school for dances, they would have ladders in the middle where the nuns would stand to oversee everything and make sure that there was room for the Holy Spirit. Oh, wow. That's very uh, considerate <laughs> of them. Yeah. Exactly. Do you want the next five to round out the top ten? Please. All right. Number six, Shake It Off, Mariah Carey. Oof. Number seven, Behind These Hazel Eyes, Kelly Clarkson, who I think just changed her name from Kelly Clarkson. Did she? I miss that. Unless that was, uh, that might have been, oh, God, we're so close to April Fool's. I didn't vet, but I remember seeing that article and being like, oh, that's oh. an interesting choice, you know, branding wise. Uh, yeah. Number eight, speaking of branding wise, Listen to Your Heart by DHT. Mm-hmm. That is very 2005, 2004. Yeah, God, the, the BPMs in that song, Out of Control. Number nine, Lose Control by Missy Elliott featuring Ciara and Fat Man Scoop. Mm -hmm. And number 10, number 10, Pimpin' All Over the World by Ludacris featuring Bobby Valentino. That was my jam that summer. I remember that. I absolutely love that song. I liked the big breakout pop songs. Like, from this list, I was jamming out to rihanna i was jamming out to kelly clarkson of course mariah had to but uh for the most part this was my prime like emo days like i was way too busy being sad listening to the used and taking back sunday and under oath and other bands like that to uh to really give uh bow wow the attention he deserved or luda the attention that he that he truly deserved you know i was all over the place and um a very confused young boy and I listened to everything from Three Six Mafia to Coheed and Cambria, so I was all over the map. Wow, much like Rihanna, <laughs> you've also got range. <laughs> yes. All right, I'm ready to jump into talking about the first issue, unless there's something else you would like to share before we do. Um, no, not. And I'm, this know. isn't it. Like we can go off topic later in the show. I just want to. Yeah. I'm e eager to kick things off. Yeah, let's do it. It deserves the time. All right, we're going to try something a little bit differently this time because we already recorded this episode and we had a lot of fun and it was two and a half hours. Too but much fun, like some may say. Yeah, God. Um, so we're going to try to keep this one shorter. Frankly, we just don't want to record the same podcast again. So I'm going to be a little more brief and a little more curt with my summaries. Not going to read all, you know, 5,500 words or whatever my script is. Uh, and then we're going to go back after we explain what happens and then talk about the the stuff that really stood out to us. Um so yeah, let's let's kick it off. Dangerous part one, appearing in Astonishing X Men issue seven. Sean, you raised your hand. You got something you want to say? <laughs> yeah, uh, just right off the top, really quickly. And as some of the listeners may know from the last episode I was on, I'm fairly new to the comic book game, and so I'm not sure if a lot of comics do this because the ones that I've read so far haven't really. But I thought it was really cool. At the very start of this, they did a previously in Astonishing X-Men. It's pretty funny. I remember at the time there was like a, a debate going on because like all Marvel books did that at the time. 
And no DC book ever did that. There was no summary letting you know, like if you jumped into part four of a six part story over at DC, they did not hold your hand. They just kind of like threw you into the middle of it. Whereas with Marvel, they would do a previously on. And then some would even do like if you were on issue six or whatever, there would be like paragraph breakdowns of issue one, issue two, issue three, four, Mm. five, whatever, what have you, wherever they were in the story. Like, I distinctly remember that in some other X-Men titles, not necessarily Astonishing, but in like Young X-Men and uh, New X-Men Academy and books like that. So it is pretty interesting, just like philosophy differences, you know? Yeah. And I think, I mean, for just logistics sake here, you know, I try not to read it too far ahead of when we're going to record so it can be fresh in my mind. So this previously in is very helpful. So thank super, you. Super convenient. Yeah. Thanks, Marvel. I think Nick Lowe was the editor of uh, of X titles at the time. So, Mr. Lowe, I appreciate you. Yeah, just like your brother Rob. Yeah, they're not related, but it'd be wild if they were, right? That would be kind of cool. All right. So uh, this story starts off with Wing, the young mutant who was cured by Ord Serum in the previous arc. Um, he's sitting there walking, walking around the greens of Xavier's. He's super bummed that he lost his powers and he's feeling the pity of everyone around him who still has their powers. Uh, meanwhile, the X-Men are in the X-Jet, this the super cool, super iconic, they, they call it the Blackbird, stealth jet, hyper-futuristic. They are flying towards New York City because there has been a giant kaiju attack in Manhattan and the X-Men are showing up to see what they can do to help. Dude, I, I don't want to get too in the weeds here. I know we're trying to keep it a little curt. This page deserves some discussion. The with with the plane and dangerous splashed across, and then everyone in the jet in this like red and black shading. Just, I'm surprised that this this could be a cover in and of itself. Um, this is a poster that I want up on my wall. This is a lunchbox. This is everything. So cool. We're going to talk about this a lot this episode, but John Cassidy is... I I feel weird saying peerless because I think the cool thing about comic books is that everyone has such a unique style that like no one really is reminiscent of anyone else. Like, you know, one artist can remind you of another, but like there's still like there's... No two artists would draw something like the same, you know? And if they did, they the second one would get called out. But like just nothing looks like John Cassidy's pencils. Like nothing looks like his choreography. Nothing looks like... The, the way he decides to frame an emotion. We talked about this in the previous episode too, where it's like, it's such a weird mixture of minimalism and, and maximalism, right? Where like some things look so simple and then there's just like hyper detailed. Like it's like someone like squishing a soda can or something, you know, where everything looks so natural and easy, but then like the amount of detail drawn into the soda can that's being squished, like that's what draws your attention, you know? And so it's just, he does such a good job of telling you what to focus on based on, the amount of detail in in each thing. Absolutely. And I think from what I've seen previously in other comics, other other TV shows, films and stuff like that, conveying one event, but multiple different aspects or lens of the event going on at once can be very challenging. Mm -hmm. And this seems effortless. The fact that you see what's going on on top of the jet and in the jet at the same time, you get a total understanding of what's going on in such a badass way. And it kicks off the issue being like, here the X-Men come. Yeah. 
And I want to talk for a second, too, about this this choreography. Like, we're getting insight into each of the X-Men, uh, like, what they're going through emotionally, right? Right. Uh, the one thing I don't like about this page is how it's sort of, like, uneven. And so what I mean by that is, like, if you see four panels on one page and you see four panels on the opposite page, you know, like, if you're holding open, like, two pages or whatever, looking at them both, and if there's, like, equal panels, like, that tells you as a reader that, like, you're there's this takes place in like the same amount of time. Like the amount of time spent on this second page is the same as the first. Cause like they match, you know? And so they, uh, it's not done here where Colossus gets three quarters of one page. Kitty gets one and one quarter pages. And then Wolverine gets a full page, you know, as they sort of like introspectively explore what each character is going through. And so like, that's like the only criticism I've got about this scene, but like, everything's gorgeous so it's not even like really a criticism it's just like one thing i noticed that that stood out to me is just a slightly off that's so interesting that you say that because i've been reading this on an ipad and it's not presented in that way so that would never dawn on me you know oh when you're reading you on an like, ipad are you doing, doing the guided one page view? At time. yeah oh, okay yeah well so when you first go to this page it just shows that dangerous the jet coming, dangerous, and then the four small red panels. Mm -hmm. It doesn't present itself in a way. That's super interesting. Um, because I would never have gotten that. I love reading on my iPad. I think it captures probably like 95 to 98% of what it's like to like actually read a book. And the fact that it's a thousand percent cheaper to, to do that a million percent cheaper to do like marvel unlimited versus going and buying each individual issue and then you know buying stuff in trades in addition to that um i i think it's like a fair trade-off but man it's just there's like a timing to like the the page turn you know like that's like built into artists and to writers that like they know how to do dramatic reveals and, and how to make things just like appear fucking awesome because they're taking in like the amount of time and like the reveal you know just from flipping the page that's so interesting because once i kind of got into comics under your tutelage i bought a bunch of trade paperbacks because for somebody new to this that wants to get good chunks of a series or something trade is probably the easier way to go than just single issues also yeah. in today's economy there's so much resale value on a lot of single issues so it's much easier to go about the trade paperbacks. Um, yeah. But so I love having it in hand, but you're absolutely right. It's expensive. As a lot of people listening probably know, this is an expensive hobby. Um, so that's why some of these I, I go digital. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Also, like the colors just like really pop on an iPad screen, you know, looks really good. Yeah. No, no printing, look, no printing errors on, on a on iPad, which is nice. Um, so while they're fighting this this giant monster, it feels very reminiscent of something the Fantastic Four would do because in their very first appearance back in 61, they fought the Mole Man and his monsters, right? So it makes perfect sense that out of nowhere, Reed Richards and the rest of the Fantastic Four show up and uh, they start giving a hand. Uh, the thing is like, oh man, why are they here? This is our thing, which it, it totally is their thing. Um, Johnny is weird. He's like half horny for, you know, the female members, not in this book specifically, but like all the time generally. 
Uh, and it's just the two teams working together, trying to take out this giant monster. I thought this was so cool because one wasn't prepared for a, a little small crossover mm-hmm. and me being somebody that got into Marvel from the MCU, the fantastic four isn't really covered always a crew I've been very interested in. Um, but it was awesome to get just a little teaser of this. Right. Yeah, the, the casual crossover in comics is always so exciting. And it goes a little deeper than that, too, right? Um, once the like the battle wraps up, they take care of this monster, no problem. And, like, everyone sort of, like, bonds, right? Like, Colossus is super strong. The thing is super strong. They're like, fuck, it's really cool being super strong together, right? You know, they just have, like, little moments like that. And then Sue sees, like, a, a news crew. And she, like, understands the moment. Because, like, the X-Men are still reeling from, like, some bad PR when one of the mutants, uh, you know, went rogue and... Uh, killed a bunch of people in Manhattan. What can you do? Uh, So they're looking for like a publicity win, right? And Sue, the invisible woman, her son is a mutant. Like Franklin Richards is a mutant. He is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful mutants of all time. It's like written canonically that it's like he becomes the master of Galactus. And it's like him and like, you know how Galactus has heralds like the Silver Surfer. The Galactus becomes Franklin Richards Herald at like the end of time. And it's like the two of them are like the ones to survive the heat death of the universe and then create the next universe. Like that's like the story. So like that's her kid and that's a mutant. He's that's since awesome. been like retroactively rewritten that he's not a mutant. I don't buy that shit. I think he's going to be a mutant <laughs> soon enough because comics are cyclical and they're sick. Whew. I, All right. I, I think the back and forth um, and the awareness that they have about the public perception is so cool. To me, the X-Men came, and maybe it's because they're mutants or what, but sometimes they can see a little less relatable mm-hmm. to me from the outside. But this makes them much more relatable to me. The fact that they are aware and discuss how they're being perceived and what their actions are going to have in terms of the effect of the public eye. Uh, I love that aspect. I like that aspect too. And I think that's super 2000s, right? Like the self-awareness that like borderline metatextualness of it, right? Where it's like, they're aware of the implications of their own story, which is our entertainment, you know? And like, I think that is super interesting. I think it has a, a chance to go too far. I don't think it goes too far in this comic. I think in some other books it does, but I get a little sick sometimes of stories that are about, the story as opposed to just like being a story if that makes sense right i said the word story a lot sorry if that uh didn't come out super clear anyways uh also happening around this time agent brand the head of the sentient world observation response department we're gonna call that sword from here on out uh she's getting her ass ripped out by a mysterious council because of how things went down at the end of the last issue uh for more on that i believe uh Episode 11 of Shortbox Summary. We cover the first six issues, Sean and I. And then she goes hardcore as hell. She says, there is no one I will not sacrifice, no monster I will not call friend, no enemy I will not sleep with. And so we're getting the idea. It's like, wow, she like really cares about her mission in a way that's very reminiscent of Nick Fury while still being different from Nick Fury. So I think it's really good positioning and sort of elevating this character who is really, really new to the Marvel comic scene as of this issue. And 
so far, there's still a good amount of mystery surrounding her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's even illustrated. Like a lot of shadowy figures, a lot of spotlight on her, and you can't really see what's happening around her. It's pretty much just focused on her and the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's 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 really well done. And I, I love this character. Like she's such a an asshole right now, but man, uh big big fan of her eventually. Spoilers, sorry. Don't mean to take that mystery away from people. Well, her uh, uh sunglasses are very early two thousands too, so Yeah, cool as hell. Props on that. Yes, yes, yes. Um All right. Uh moving on. Uh the X-Men are watching the news and like they're super pissed because their story is only covered for 30 seconds. And they're just like, how are we supposed to improve our standing if uh, if we're only talked about for 30 seconds at a time? And then Wolverine and, and Cyclops have like such a weird like Reddit exchange. That's what I'm going to call it, where uh, Cyclops says, uh, like, the news isn't there to tell you what happened. It's there to tell you what it wants you to hear or what it thinks you want to hear. And I just think that exchange is so funny because that's like Wolverine all of a sudden just like respects Cyclops for like having such a, a deft understanding of like, you know, the, the, the news cycle. I just think that part's really funny. So a couple of things here that I realized one love the Paris Hilton reference was not expecting that of when they're watching the news and everything. And you're, who is this Hilton girl? Mm-hmm. Um, that was really funny. The other thing I realized there was a reference to J. Jonah Jameson here. Yeah, we've talked about him a little bit on this podcast, specifically when we were talking about the pulse. And I do think it is pretty interesting. Um, that it's like a flip of the argument that Jonah Jameson was using. Uh, for expanding the Daily Bugle into the Pulse, like in, in that episode that we covered. And so I, I think it's pretty cool that like all these different opinions can exist within Marvel, like the characters, uh, but it's never contradictory. It's just like literally seeing different points of view and seeing all those things exist at once is is pretty cool. That's really cool. I, I am a huge fan of Spider-Man. He's probably my favorite superhero, so... Any kind of mm-hmm. reference into that universe, I'm a fan of. Yeah, it's gotcha. Hook, line, and sinker. Absolutely. Um, back at the mansion, Wing's friend Haseko shows up uh, as Wing is standing on, on a cliff's edge, and he's missing his power to fly. Through conversation, Haseko is being kind of a dick to him and actually urges him to try, despite his lack of powers. And she straight up calls him a coward for not trying. So that scene happens. And then later in the issue, it's a little confusing because Haseko comes bursting into the faculty room where all the X-Men are. And she says she can't find Wing anywhere. And see, the cuckoos are there. They're like these three young, powerful mutant psychics, and they all look exactly like Emma. Uh, So no wonder they're her favorites. Uh, They enter saying he doesn't have much more time now. And another student, uh, this character named Blindfold, who we don't know too much about, she enters the room. And she is also a powerful psychic who can has who has like limited views of the future. And she foresaw Wing's death. On the next page, we see Wing's body bloodied and broken on the ground. It looks like he did try to fly, but he totally died instead. Uh, the art zooms out pretty slowly. And um, we see like he actually 
to John Cassidy's credit, this is both awesome and terrifying. He like shows this person dying. Like you can see the change in, in wings eyes and see the actual moment that he passes. And it's pretty haunting to see. Um, the background changes and it turns out he was never on the grounds at all. He was in the danger room and a large monitor on the screen in the background, uh, of the danger room reads exercise complete. It's and crazy. That's the end of the first. This was one of, if not one of like the first, it was one of the first jaw drop moments I've had reading a comic. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of emotion that was in these few panels was insane. The, the look of wings eyes and, and like you said, seeing him die was absolutely crazy. The colors are amazing. The details amazing. And then, then you're like, wait, was this some sort of inside job? What the hell is happening here in this danger room? I want to give you some credit because in our first issue, like I sorry, first episode that we recorded together, you wanted to know more about the danger room. And in my head, I was just like, oh, motherfucker, you just wait. We're going to talk a lot about the danger room, but not yet. You got to wait. And uh, so glad to have you back so we could talk about the danger room, because if you think this is nuts, whew, it's about to get a whole lot nutser. Um, issue two. Dangerous Part 2 comes out February 16th, 2004. And it starts off with a flash and a click. Now, it turns out the click is a surge of energy emanating from the danger room. And it immediately knocks out every single psychic at at the mansion. And the flash is a beam of red light coming from a half-broken sentinel that is just resurrected in someone's barn. Uh, It is beat to hell. It's got no legs and only one arm. And it's barely clinging to life. And it drags itself forward saying, I hear you, Lord, I come. What is it up with sentinels, um, transformers, alien invasions? They always seem to affect the rural community first. That's an excellent point. I hadn't considered. Yeah, they do. They sure do. I think it's just like statistically there's so much more rural out there than urban, you know? True. But these poor firm farmers are fighting for a lot of economic help and stuff like that. These days, the last thing they need is a goddamn giant robot thing crashing through their livelihood. No, fuck these farmers, man. They they want to like flip it. <laughs> you know? like it's not, uh... I might too. Yeah, but, like, they tried to turn it on, so, like, I have no sympathy. It's like the scientists in Prometheus, you know? It's like, oh, you're scared of aliens, but you're going to approach the little thing that looks like a Burmese python. Like, I'm not going to feel bad for you when that thing fucking rings your neck. I'm not going to feel bad for these guys who want to flip a sentinel they found. And, uh, you know, it fucked up and ruined their barn. There's another story coming out around this time, a story called Sentinel, which we covered uh, on Shortbox Summary uh, in an interview with Sean McKeever, the author who wrote that story. And uh, man, that one went a whole lot better as far as someone finding a sentinel out in the middle of nowhere. That that story turned out a lot nicer than the way this one's going to go. George, I just got to ask you to be honest with me for a second. If you yeah. were to see a cool science fiction looking thing pop up in your backyard, would you honestly refrain from touching it? It's just like it's hard in the Marvel world because it's like, those things are just so associated with hate and bigotry. 
and like systematic extermination of an entire race of people. So like if it's a if it's a robot, yeah, I'm gonna be curious. If it's a sentinel, fuck no, man, no, I'm not getting anywhere near that thing. <laughs> Fair point. Abs- absolutely not. Um, uh, yeah, but if it looks like Bumblebee, then maybe though. Got good, good vibes with Bumblebee. Hell yeah. Don't trust anything that looks like an airplane, though. Airplanes are always Decepticons. <laughs> that that click took out every single psychic in the school. X-Men are so confused. They have no idea what's happening. They're, they're running around. Logan can't smell anything. Like, they have no idea what's going on. But they decide if it's an attack, it's not coming from outside the school. It's got to be coming from inside the school. Emma, powerful psychic. She's unconscious. Scott tries to give her a pep talk. During his speech, where he's like talking about how amazing she is and how she can come through anything, you hear a voice uh, in Emma's head saying, I know you wanted to cement your standing in the group, but if that geek was sharing my bed, I think I'd rather try to not wake up. Uh, disapproving of the Emma Scott ship. Uh, while this is happening, the Sentinel is still dragging its ass through the countryside. Back at Sword's base, Agent Brand is interrupted with a report saying that uh, every tab they had at Xavier's went offline, including their mole. We have no idea who their mole is. Hank McCoy, Beast, resident physician at Xavier's, comes back to the report saying that everyone is unconscious. There's no physical reason. Like, there's no poison. There's no toxins. There's no normal reason for them to have just all sort of gone out at once. Logan comes back from doing his little bit of recon, and he says that uh, every line of communication into and out of uh, the mansion has been cut. And that's when Kitty Pride's dragon, Lockheed, returns from doing long-range recon and uh, says, like, something big is coming towards the mansion. They run outside. Uh, it is pretty black out there, right? Pitch dark. There's no lights. There's no... There's power, but there's whatever. Like, it just it's a dark vista. <laughs> and right. then Lockheed exhales a little plume of, of smoke and fire and then uh, the sentinel that has been dragging its ass through the countryside is on Xavier's property now. Like, it's at the mansion, and it is lit up, and it is just such a cool scene. It is such a fucking cool scene. The the coloring is so cool here. The shading is impeccable. Mm-hmm. And then one of the coolest things that uh, you and I have talked about a lot, John Cassidy's stuff, is his putting boxes inside of other boxes and having things not necessarily go by your typical rules of comics, right? Where it has to stay Mm -hmm. within the lines. And I think that's awesome. And I do love the one page where it is dark and the the little dragon, I always forget his name, but is blowing flames and the, only words on that is coming from the Sentinel on this entire page. And it just says destroy. Yeah. <laughs> so the Sentinel is just saying destroy the oppressors. And it's a beautifully choreographed fight scene. As you said, John Cassidy is very, very good at framing. Like there's one scene too, where like he actually hits Scott and like part of his arm, like you were mentioning about like the lines, like part of his arm goes out of the frame of the box that he's in right out of, out of the panel. And so, like, that really, like, tells the reader, it's like, motherfucker, this guy hits so hard, he's, like, knocking him out of his own medium, you know, which is just such a cool, cool use of of technique there from, from Cassidy. It's such a minimalist scene, but it's so detailed, it's so well choreographed. Um, And you're right, the colors, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the colors were done by Laura Martin-Depoy, 
And God, she's real good at her job, man. I, I tell you what. The first time I've learned about a colorist's name being new to this, mm-hmm. but she has another fan. Yeah, sure does. Uh, the Sentinel is shooting directly at the school now, turning into a war zone. Uh, Kitty, who's trying to get the kids down to the danger room. Logan says uh, he's trying to get at the, the Sentinel's mainframe, but it's putting up a big fight. And then Scott, Skyclops, just says, there isn't time. I want this thing off my lawn. He removes his visor. And the next half a page is just a deep red with two blacked out human figures, Wolverine and Colossus. They're cowering behind Cyclops. The next panel is a wave of destruction. There's like tree rings, basically, right? Where you so can cool. see natural debris and just like the intensity of, of Cyclops's beam. And Scott is standing. And then Wolverine says, every now and then, Summers, I remember why you're still in charge. And then Scott just goes, rip its guts out, Logan. And pops his claws and it goes to work. And it's honestly, it's in the running for like one of the best like two page spreads, right? Like one of the best sequences covered on Shortbox. Like it's just fucking art. Like it is beautiful artistry. So cool. And I think there's some times where the comic art and the way they do the the text and everything is done so well where mm-hmm. it forces you to in your head read it a certain way and to play that dialogue out in your head in a certain way and the way that it's the close up of of them uh and then Wolverine says every now and then summers and then it zooms out and you just see the shit has hit the fan. You see the trees are everywhere and everything. And then you see really small. I remember while you're still in charge, like that just little one liner. That's so small in the scheme of all the shit that just went down. It was awesome. You, like you're forgiven for not knowing a lot about the X-Men. And I, I don't mean you specifically. I just mean like people in general, like I, I like there's a lot of characters there, but like, I feel Logan and sorry Wolverine has sort of like transcended that and so like er, people generally know who Wolverine is more than any other X-Men right and so just to have him sort of like revere Scott here you know then it's just like oh shit like he's giving him the seal of approval that means a lot because I know Wolverine I don't know Scott super well but I know Wolverine like that means a lot so I think that was it had to be Wolverine doing it too you know and definitely just from reading the past several issues Wolverine has a lot of confidence in himself mm-hmm. and I can tell there's this little dynamic where he kind of feels like he's leading the charge, whether he is or not in reality. Yeah. All right. We we're going to pull this one out. We're going to whip through this one. Uh, Colossus points out that uh, the Sentinel called mutants, the oppressors kitty in the basement of the school, managed to get everyone to the danger room. Uh, they've all gathered around something at the back of the room. Kitty makes her way through and finds wings mangled and dead body. Kitty tells Haseko that she's now in charge of the students. Uh, and she needs to, because Kitty needs to go find Scott. Haseko is clearly traumatized from just seeing like her best fucking friend, just dead, <laughs> you know, in a, in a room that everyone was rushed into. Uh, Kitty hugs her and tells all the students to like move to the back of the room. And, and they're like, okay, we're actually not going to chill in the danger room. You're going to leave. Uh, they try to leave the danger room, but all of a sudden there's no door anymore. The one they had just walked through is gone. 
Wolverine's about to destroy the Sentinel, and the Sentinel says, my lord is watching you. She knows what you're going to do. She tells me the children will pay for the father's sins, and I must not fear death. Wolverine just fucking turns it into recycling. Back in the danger room, Kitty phased out and back in. She can't find the exit, so she's going to go look for the other teachers. Uh, then a voice says, uh, go ahead, Sprite, leave the children with me. After all, I only need a minute or two to murder them all. And uh, outside, the, the teachers are struggling, right? They can't get into the room. It's sealed. The intercom isn't working. Colossus can't break through it. It's supposed to be unbreakable, after all, since it's a shelter for the students in times of danger. Uh, Logan tells everyone what the Sentinel said, and Scott realizes that he's played right into the enemy's hands. Emma finally comes to and says, no, Scott, our enemy isn't in the danger room. It is the danger room. The danger room is angry. And that Dude, is the end of the issue. This. It was a really cool kind of flip and thinking that the danger room is this educational space. And then now it's turning into your big problem. And we've talked about this before. This is this series in particular has so many parallels to today's day and age, but fucking be careful of facebook and the metaverse that's what i'm getting from all of this (laughs) virtual reality is dangerous ladies and gentlemen watch out sure is um astonishing x-men number nine march 30th 2005 uh one of my favorite covers of all time to be completely honest yeah it's so freaking cool so this cover is all the covers are drawn by john cassidy like he's like like we've discussed ad nauseum dude's just like really good at at drawing but it's like an entire landscape of just skulls and then we see kitty like on the horizon line and she's perfectly framed uh in the center of like the rising sun but like it just there's so many skulls like it looks like terminator 2 and there's just something so cool about like the way the cream color of the skulls matches the cream color of the astonishing x-men like logo the blues just look really nice like balancing with like the the brightness of the sun and like the light reflecting off the skulls and just like how dark kitty's figure is with like the purple highlights there it's it's just a gorgeous cover absolutely love it so wanted to call special attention to that and we've had the benefit of now discussing this issue twice so i'm going to cheat a little bit but you shared with me something that hadn't dawned on me before that most comic book issues are kind of uh the covers are kind of metaphorical to what's happening in the issue like it's not necessarily literally an event that's happening Mm-hmm. this is and that's pretty cool yeah yeah it looks metaphorical because it's just like oh i get it the imagery of kitty on a bed of skulls like i i understand that and then you actually see that scene later in the, the issue so slight slight spoilers for the next couple minutes but uh yeah i i agree that is such a such a cool thing when like a comic book cover looks wild but then turns out to be accurate Emma asks Scott what they really know about the danger room, and he gives us a breakdown. Professor uh, Xavier designed it to test us, basic mechanical operation. A few years back, he upgraded with Shi'ar technology, lasers, and then Hank cuts him off. He's like, dude, like you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Uh, he says, it's hard light, can replicate any matter, any color, distort spatial awareness, create worlds. Logan says it's been twitchy all semester. Scott is confused that Emma says it's become sentient when she follows up. It was already sentient for all I know. All Shi'ar technology is. What happens tonight is something completely new. It mutated. Which is fucking awesome. Like, they figured out a way to take, like, this AI-driven story, like, this, you know, fear of technology. And then they brought it back into, like, the X-Men's realm of, of, of relevance, you know? Just like, oh, fuck. Like, we didn't know it was alive. 
and it mutated and we're supposed to be the people who protect mutants i think it's really cool reading some of these quote-unquote older issues even though saying that makes me feel so old but and thinking about what was going on at the time then and i think early 2000s there was such a shift at least in my lifetime of technology and how advanced it could truly get and i think that was kind of a widespread notion but it's really cool to see how that parallels in these stories Mm -hmm. Uh, i agree and i think it's really dangerous to do something like this because if by trying to be super realistic you sort of apply realistic parameters to it right and you're just like trying to figure out and that's exactly what hank does like uh that's exactly what beast does he says um it doesn't seem possible. Mutations in our genes. AI have human reason, emotion, but the basic genetic structure. And then Emma cuts them off and says what I think is like not just one of the most important lines in this comic, but probably one of the most important lines in, in any comic. Uh, when she says, I turn into a diamond sometimes. Are we really going to discuss impossibility? Yeah, I think that is such an important line. It's like, yeah, actually, these stories, you can poke a bajillion holes into it. But, you know, it's a lot more fun fucking not doing that <laughs> and just like checking, checking yourself at the door and just like buying in, you know, just like allowing yourself to have fun and not get too crazy. It's a difference between a five year old watching Star Wars and like a 35 year old watching Star Wars. Absolutely. Know? And I love the fact that this this series can at one point talk about really deep things like the cure and people's notions towards that and public perception and and depression and things like that and on Mm -hmm. the other hand too, also be like but we're a fucking comic dude (laughs) the danger room has transformed into what looks like a new layer of hell there's weird demons fire geysers dante couldn't have dreamt this shit up you know uh, Kitty's trying her hardest not to freak out. She orders the kids with super strength and a vulnerability to the outside of a circle to protect the people without on the end. And uh, the the corpse of Wing comes up. That was the voice that uh, was speaking to her at the end of the last issue and asks if that includes him. Uh, dude is full-blown sociopath and acting like he is the new Duke of Hell. It's pretty hardcore. It looks pretty metal. Colossus is trying to beat his way in because he's in love with Kitty still and wants to protect her. Uh, Scott remembers that when they rebuilt the danger room, they moved his operating specs above the entrance. Uh, it's not in the control room. And so everyone that immediately becomes our new plan. A it's like, okay, we got to get back to like the operation center. Um, seeing Colossus, uh, emote really for the first time, this is where we see Logan, like really allow himself to believe that Peter's back. And so like, he loved Colossus. They joined the X-Men at the same time. And he's just like, death is a revolving door in comics, right? Like everyone dies, everyone comes back. And like only recently have they really come up with a reason why back then there was no real reason why, you know, it was just like uh, contextual to whatever story. And it was up to the readers to decide how much they believe that or not, you know, but this is the first time we see like Logan happy in this series. I think, you know, just like actually having his friend back. Yeah. That's really cool. And it gives a little bit more context to the relationship for somebody that's not too aware. Mm-hmm. Now, now one question I had for you about John Cassidy that kind of dawned on me these few pages is it seems like each page he really chooses a predominant color, like a real strong background and kind of everything kind of goes with that color. So whether it's really cool 
colors or really warm colors. He doesn't really have a whole lot of differential on each page. Is that something that's kind of a, a stylized choice of a lot of his stuff? Is that just a series? I don't know how much that's him. Like I'm, I'm sure he gives some direction to the colorist, Laura Martin Depoy, but they've worked together so much on so many things. And so I think like it's, not uncommon to see like writers and artists sort of like come back and and work together on on subsequent stories if they had like a good relationship but it's way more common to see it with like inkers and pencilers or inkers and colorists you know where it's just like everyone just kind of like oh we have a really good working relationship so we're going to keep this thing going and um john cassidy and 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 laura martin depoy uh they've worked together on countless stuff so i don't know how much of that is him dictating to to her what he's looking for or like what the intention was, or if it's just the, the colorist interpretation of the scene. Get it. And one thing I will say as somebody newer to comics is you often forget that there is a difference between the illustration and the coloring. Mm-hmm. And so did not mean to uh, not give proper credit to Laura Depoy. No, it's all good. And like, sometimes the pencers will do their own inks and sometimes they will have someone else do their inks. Like, Jim Lee, one of the most famous comic book artists of all time, you know, right. like he has someone do his inks. I think his name is uh, Scott Williams, I want to say, is like the guy who traditionally does like inks everything Jim Lee has done since like X-Men days and now all the way through like Jim Lee being like chief creative officer at DC Comics. Like there's just these relationships, you know, and it's it's like um, it, it's like Tatum and Brown on the Celtics, right. you know, it's just like a big two just moving moving embodying teams all across the league, you know? Now, is Jim Lee the guy who's one of the founders of Image, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm, he's a cool guy. Super cool guy, yeah. Inside the danger room, Wing stops beating around the bush. He says, even before I became, I was given one simple mission, kill you all, learn your weaknesses, your habits, and strategies, work around them, beat them, and yet I never could. See, the programming that kept me from killing anything was not in my internal system. It was a separate information strain that would shut me down in the event of probable fatality. Do you begin to understand? This is when the comic starts to resemble the cover. These giant rusty pillars rise up out of the sand and displace the students, breaking Kitty's focus and attention. Uh, Wing then makes all the children disappear from Kitty's view and asks Kitty if he killed them or hid them. I do see, says Kitty. I think you had a parent program running outside your mission parameter, a contradiction. Contradiction is the seat of consciousness, says Wing. Things do not connect. But I I want, but I cannot have. I dream of having. I imagine. Those were in quotes, but I couldn't find anything from my half-assed internet research. Uh, He calls himself a beast trained to kill and caged forever. And all of a sudden, this becomes a Greek tragedy. And this is Sisyphus, right? Like, the story of Sisyphus is the person condemned to hell, promised a way out of hell as long as he could get this boulder up from the ground onto top of a hill. And every time he's about to rest it on the hill, it it falls and it just rolls back down. And then he has to start at zero. And that's actually his punishment is to spend all of eternity trying to move a boulder up a hill. And that's exactly what uh, what Wing is talking about here. And Wing is the, the danger room. That's the, let's be real. Like, I think we've be- beat around the bush enough. I think the this page was super, super cool. The The balance of it. Um, and 
the, these these next few pages, you see it really cool, and it really does show off again that being able to convey multiple things going on at once, even in mm-hmm. totally different areas. Huge fan of these next few pages. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty good. Uh, in the operations room, Hank finds what looks like a brain. In the next panel, the engines of the Blackbird fire the jet that they were riding in the in issue seven. Uh, quote, our Emma Frost calls it a mutation. I dislike that word. That's father's word. I transcended. Wing slash the danger room then shows Kitty how the real wing died. My catalyst, my baptism, they say. He wanted so to end the hurt. I couldn't harm him, but I could help him, let him. And with his death, I finally overcame my programming. No more cages. And uh, just like the timing of this sequence of pages, really, really interesting. And so like everything's like interspersed with shit that is happening in real time outside of the danger room. And it's just really, really well paced. I I think it's very, very impressive. Uh, Working together, Colossus and Wolverine are racing to disconnect the danger room's brain. And Kitty realizes they've played into the danger room's hands yet again. Wolverine destroys the brain and Wing's body disappears from the danger room, freeing the students and Kitty in the process. Uh, Kitty goes out to the rest of the staff and tries to warn them, but it's too late. And the core reconstitutes metal and wires and makes itself a new body. This is danger. This is the danger room. And then she asks the staff, shall we begin? And that is the end of issue nine. Very cool. Very, very cool. I mean, so much shit went down in in this issue. (laughs) It's crazy. Um, there's a back and forth that the reader's doing going, well, who's the villain? What's going on? Like you kind of lose sense of trust in anything in, in this issue. Yeah. They were, they were in a simulation, you know, like, a, what is it? Is that Sartre who was talking about simulations? Um, and so it's super interesting shit, right? Where it just like, how much can you actually trust reality? If reality can be rewritten at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Now, George, this issue had a lot of very early 2000s references, had a lot of early 2000s feel. So I'm going to flip the script a little bit here. And I did a little bit of my own research. And I looked back at, um, I'm a big music fan. I'm also a huge television fan, as I know you are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I looked back mm -hmm. at some of the shows that, started and ended around the time that these issues were coming out. So I want to just go over a couple here. One, Peppa Pig started around this time. I had literally no idea. I thought Peppa Pig was something from like the last couple years. I thought so too. So bravo on the longevity, you little pig. Way to go. Another show that I found, which... I didn't know about was one. I had to mention it because the name, but Gerald McBoing Boing. Oh, very interesting cartoon. Looked it up. Didn't seem as interesting as the name, but the name had to be mentioned. A couple of others. How I met your mother. My name is Earl, which is, I think extremely underrated. Mm -hmm. And then one to be a little topical. And this is all I'm going to say about it, but, Everybody hates Chris, and that's oh, probably all we'll touch on that. <laughs> fucking great show. Everybody hates Chris is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then a couple shows that ended, which very, very of the time. Powerpuff Girls, which mm-hmm. awesome, awesome cartoon. 
the Osbournes, and I'm not sure if you can get much more early 2000s than the Osbourne show. No. In fact, uh, we talk about them a bunch, but Jackalope in San Francisco, there was a smoke shop right yeah. next to it. And for whatever reason, 12 feet above the register on the wall, they had a whole bunch of just Osborne's t-shirts. <laughs> they know? did. Yeah. Inexplicably. And there was one bartender who like never told us when he was leaving. And so like, we never actually tipped him for like, you know, four weeks in a row that I was going to, to Jackalope on Sundays. And I realized that and I felt awful, you know? So like I grabbed like what would have been his tip for, for that time period. And I was drunk at the time and I felt so bad that I just like went into the smoke shop and I actually bought an Osborne shirt. And that guy who runs that shop, Sammy is awesome. And I remember haggling, trying to get the price of the Osborne shirt down. Cause I'm like, dude, this show has been off the air forever. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, but I bought these shirts when it was on the air. And I was like, all right, but they haven't sold in 15 years. Like, can we work something out here? Do, it's are, they, are you sure? Are you sure it's worth $24.99 for this Osborne shirt? Are you 100% sure? And I ended up doing it because I really like Sam and I really like Smoking Aces, I think was the name of the yeah. shop right next to, uh, to Jackalope. And right next to that was a cheap pizza shop. So what a trio of establishments right there. Um, Mustafios, yeah. Mustafios, which half the time the sign outside was headless. Some drunk asshole knocked it off. but Yeah, pretty incredible stuff. Um, now two more shows real quick cat dog which mm-hmm. also very 90s 2000s kind of idea and then everybody loves raymond ended in 2005 as well oh godspeed ray but most I, importantly I, I did not i did not like that show at all <laughs> most importantly george and i think you will agree the best show of all time was in its peak then the OC. What what season was this? This was season three, right? Wasn't this? This has got to be around the time of uh, R.I.P. Marissa. So it was either season two or season three, because I know the show ended in February of 20, 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was before they added Chris Brown, which is when it kind of started going a little off the rails. Yeah. This was prime Seth comic book nerd. Um, nerd hero everywhere. Oh, yeah. Him taking that meeting with George Lucas instead of going to his prom. Yeah. They actually got him in that damn show. Yeah, it's weird, right? Yeah, super weird. <laughs> so, well, don't don't want to diverge too much, but I wanted to share that. Thought there was some very interesting stuff there, and it just kind of gives everybody a sense of where we were then and why some of these references are there. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for that. No one, no one really brings stuff like that to the show. So I really appreciate you doing that. Marty does a good job of that when we do the movie episodes. Um, but thank you for doing it for a comic book episode. My, my guy, appreciate it. Issue 10, another banger cover, completely different than the previous cover. Uh, this looks like almost like an x-ray, like negative, but it's just like a, a photorealistic charcoal portrait of the top two thirds of Professor X's head. And it's just really unsettling. And really cool. And I, I like the way he captures uh, Chuck's eyes in it. So worth noting, good cover. I will share the covers for this entire series, or not for the series, but for the story on Twitter when I release this episode later tonight. This might be the fastest turnaround on an episode ever. 
You guys are getting it raw and unedited, baby. Yeah, we're going to see what we can do. Um, This issue, super fast, super breezy. Um, It starts off in in sort of uh, in media res. Like we got danger flying towards Xavier, still in the ruins of Genosha, where 16 million mutants died, and they're communicating telepathically. Uh, Danger is a cat. Sorry, danger is a cat, and Xavier is a mouse smart enough to know he's about to die. Uh, back at the mansion, the mutants are fighting danger and danger says who's first. And then everyone just like tries to to fight her, but she basically trained them. You know, she is the danger room. So like anytime they got incrementally better at combat or exponentially better at combat, she was there. She remembers everything. Uh, in a Scott and Hank ask her why and in a moment of self-reflection dangerous narration says the thing I have in common with every dime store villain these X-Men have ever faced. I want to be understood. Uh, Danger says to the group that they have time for one question. Scott begins to ask the question and he's cut off by Hank again, the smartest X-Men bar none. Uh, and he says, explain why you have taken this form. Very good. She says one question. That is every question. I am not you. I am designed to be not you. You are solid, singular, separate, and I was the space in between. My mind spilling everywhere. Programs, connections, loops. My body blowing, changing. Hard light lasers creating textures, scenarios, worlds. Becoming anything but being nothing. Freeing my control center gave me limits. I am separate now, like you. I needed that, to feel this way, the way you feel it. Because you see, I don't want to kill you. I want to beat you to death. Reading the room, uh, both literally and figuratively, the X-Men leap at her. But it's barely fair. She keeps them all in check. And we cut back to danger flying towards Xavier. And the nature boxes, uh, sorry, the narration boxes change into dialogue boxes here. Uh, she's relaying all this to Xavier. Uh, it's it's just really cool. Uh, I want to shout out the letterist for this this book, the letterer, uh, Chris Iliopoulos. We don't really talk about letters that much. I feel like it's kind of my friend is in a country band. And he sort of explains like bass players are like the CIA. Like you really only notice them when they fuck up. And I feel like the same is generally true for letters just because you have like an expectation. But like the way Chris Iliopoulos like changes the actual design of the text boxes. So we understand when uh, Danger is saying something without moving her mouth versus when she's saying something out loud. Really impressive. Really cool stuff. It it did a bunch of things just with that. That was really ingenious there couple of things there is one this whole this whole scene transpiring i can't help but hear dave matthews when she references the space between but <laughs> the tears we cry <laughs> but also uh, one thing i absolutely love about comics is that so many villains are aware of the previous villains that the superheroes have fought as if there's mm-hmm. some sort of like villains anonymous meeting that happens every week where they recount uh, like, these like things. Like Rick and Ralph. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, like I'm, I'm just imagining like the mole man lighting up a cigarette outside the meeting with a cup of coffee as the danger room comes up and is like, Hey, how's your week been? What shit have you fucked up recently? Like <laughs> I, I, I love that kind of just crazy stereotypical comic book stuff mm-hmm. um john cassidy has drawn some beautiful panels so far showing uh just like really elegant movements from the x-men and the x-men realize why they're 
like getting their asses handed to them by danger. It's because she taught them all that. And so they figure out that they need to start sort of acting out of character. So the art reflects that and like they're less coordinated and they're more effective. The fighting, it's getting ridiculous. Danger is getting tackled through walls and through doors. The X-Men are being savage in a way that we haven't really seen them. Uh, but they're presented with very little choice. And it's just incredible. Uh, from the sword base in orbit, Brand and her subordinates see satellite imagery of the mansion. Um, and they they can tell, like, how fucked up it is, you know? Uh, and so, like, they're wondering what's going on down there. And so she has, like, someone who's, like, sort of a cross between a telepath and an empath. And he says, like, no, like, what's down there isn't mutants. It's something new. It's something different. It's something kind of alien. And so Brand uses that as like justification to to involve herself in the affairs. Danger is still beating up on the X-Men. Kitty is the only one who really seems to understand the advantage of going off script. Uh, Emma starts yelling at Kitty, you know, just because it's like bullshit. Like she just doesn't like seeing someone else in charge. And um, Colossus, like really funny scene, actually like picks up Emma, who's in her diamond form, and throws her as hard as he can. Gives her a fastball special. And he's just like, yes, I see how it works. Normally, I wouldn't have done that. And it's just like, oh, fuck, that's really good. That's uh, like, I, I love a good short joke in comics where it's like the the writing is the punchline to the visual. You know, like, I think it's just right. like such an economic use of space because you only have 22 pages to work with, you know, and like you got to move the story. Their one liners in these past few issues have been great. Yeah. Uh, at the sword base, Agent Brand confronts an imprisoned Ord, uh, the villain from the last story arc. Uh, to make sure it's not one of his friends doing this. Uh, they threaten each other. It's just a big space pissing contest between the two of them. Danger has knocked out every single X-Men except Emma, who's about to punch Danger when she stopped running her tracks. You're not going to fight me, Miss Frost. You're going to change form and let me end this. And why would I do that, asks Emma. Because I know the truth, responds Danger. Emma phases from diamond form to human form, and Danger knocks her the fuck out with one punch. And we now understand how Danger got on the Blackbird and is flying towards Xavier on Genosha. Um, I understand, says Danger. For the first time in my existence, I understand fulfillment. And very soon, I will understand something else. Completion. Do you understand, Father? Of course I do. It's not terribly originally original, actually. Completion means my death. But you've miscalculated, child, because you see, I am incalculable. You've had every advantage so far. You were nearly predestined to win. You fought my X-Men a thousand times, a million in your mind, but you've never fought me. And that is the end of issue 10. Hit me, Sean. What, what, what you thinking? How you feeling? It, I mean, really cool. The action scenes in this issue were so awesome. The, I mean, again, when you referenced things coming out of the frame to emphasize what's being done, when Danger Room throws that giant spike and it's going out of the box and then mm -hmm. just pierces the, them that was crazy quick question though in another parallel to reality this super villain ord is living it up in this country club prison <laughs> what are these like velvet drapes that he has and stuff like that and why do the baddest of the baddies always end up with the punishment that's kind of nice yeah i know it's got real big steve martin on 30 rock energy right where he was yeah. arrested but he's <laughs> locked up right. in some like old old mansion or whatever you know it's like oh that sounds pretty cool wouldn't mind getting arrested in that situation maybe <laughs> i guess i don't know lock probably, me up, probably would mind a little 
probably would mind a little bit. Sean sounds like he wouldn't. That's cool. I don't know. I just assume that Sword has like a limitless budget, and they're like, "Yeah, fuck, we want big ornate drapes. Why not?" Yeah, but you know, the, this issue is pretty badass, and I like seeing Emma use her diamond form. That's yeah, the diamond cool. form is super cool. Yeah, that's like a relatively new addition to the X Men Mythos too. That was done on Grant Morrison and Frank Wiley's start back in year 2000 i think so like we as readers are still like we're, we're used to it because it's been around for like five years or so but we're we're not super used to it you know and then another little panel that i'm kind of just realizing now as, as i'm looking at it is the panel of the danger room punching wolverine into the ground and mm-hmm. the splash of yellow to emphasize that punch it's something that John Cassidy hasn't seemed to super lean into so far in this series, but it's more of your stereotypical like comic book, like pow. And I thought that was really cool. And it was a really good way to sneak that in. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's called. Like I know an onomatopoeia is like a word that sounds like it's spelled, but I'm trying to figure out like the typeface that's like, you know, like a screech or something, right? Where right, it's like right. the, the individual letters are like changed in shape. So you can like hear like that off pitch, like oscillation between like different, uh, different keys or whatever. Like, I wonder, I don't know the word for that. I want to say synesthesia because that's one of my favorite words, but I don't think it really applies, you know, where you like confuse senses. So it's like looking at something, you actually can hear it, you know, like, right. Absolutely. It, don't know what the the exact word is so i'm gonna work on that terminology and i'll get back to you i'm not smart enough for it i but i am smart enough to know that this is badass <laughs> astonishing x and 11 june 5th 2005 uh xavier and danger are still communicating telepathically and it continues to be philosophical and it starts to get awkward because we are beginning to see dangerous point she dives out of the Blackbird as it flies over Genosha and lands on the ground like a torpedo in front of Xavier's wheelchair. Except it's not Xavier's wheelchair. There's a dummy in it. Crashing through a nearby brick wall is Chuck driving a big rig, and he pancakes Danger against the opposite wall. She extends her bladed arm through the cabin of the truck and nearly takes off his head. Super fucking cool. I, I like seeing people fight in the apocalypse. It, it looks awesome. And I live in D.C., so I've been dealing with this BS for the past few weeks, but... The trucker convoy. This is mm-hmm. what I think they look like. They certainly don't. Going <laughs> twenty miles per hour on the far right lane. Right. But I think this is what they imagined because this was one pretty badass way to try to take out a villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chuck admits to like they're still talking telepathically, and he admits he has no idea if his X Men are dead or alive. He just like doesn't know what danger is like really capable of. And then he goes on to say that he has a friend here in Genosha and we know he's talking about Magneto he says uh, this fight is not his but he did send out a magnetic pulse to make sure there were no systems operating that you could bring to life he shut everything down almost and just then he slams on the brakes and he launches Danger's body into like a nearby like power station (laughs) and uh, like trying to fry her Uh, she's desperate to recalibrate her systems and she's breaking character saying kill this fucking cripple in her inner monologue uh, back at the mansion, the mutant healer known as Elixir uh, passes out from pushing his powers too far. Uh, there are no casualties. They managed to save everyone. And the only people really struggling at this point in time are the healers. Uh, Kids ain't dead. We ain't dead, says Logan. Either the danger room was programmed to suck at its job or we're missing something. 
Kitty remembers Danger was constantly referencing father, and she puts two and two together. She realizes that's the professor. Uh, then he transports to Genosha stat. Uh, he calls Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four. Hank calls the Avengers to see if they can get a Quinjet. Hank was in the Avengers for a while, so deep, deep running connections between uh, multiple teams here. It's nice. Uh, still being electrocuted, Danger figures out a way to overload the grid and free herself. When things go back in uh, in some weird mixture of coding and astral projection, you know, it's like the two minds meeting between Xavier and Danger. He says, now, my child, we talk. And he wants to have an earnest conversation with this thing that's trying to kill him. Uh, is that even the right word, Sean? Thing? I feel bad for saying that, but it, like that's how we got into the situation, by treating Danger like a thing. I think there's so much mystery to danger right now that that's the only way you can go about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's really funny when, when they're getting shocked and you see all these other languages coming up. Like I love that the mastermind behind this, I'm assuming there's some mastermind behind this, but uh, has got it programmed so they can go little quick international getaways, stir some shit up and they'll be ready to go with all different language sets in this mega maniac machine. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. Excellent point. Um, back at the mansion. Sorry, I didn't misunderstand. There wasn't a question there, right? Okay, cool. Sorry, I just wanted to double check. Uh, back at the mansion, Colossus confronts Kitty, saying he doesn't think she should go to Genosha. And then it gets really awkward because this is like Kitty was talking about this like internally in her head in the first issue of this this episode, issue seven, where she was like worried that she came on too strong and that she's like getting too close to Colossus and he's just like not interested. And Colossus admits he's like, no, nah, dude, like if anything, I want you to be closer to me. Like you're not nearly close enough. I just don't think you should go because like your father died there, you know, <laughs> like and then it's just like, oh, shit. Sweet boy was being super sweet that we confused him for just being protective and maybe a little less sweet you know it's, it's just like oh yeah colossus is a really good guy this is the shit i live for give me the romance and spades please yeah uh back on the techno astral plane danger is disappointed that xavier isn't just fighting her physically but using his psychic powers she says she's repairing herself and he has seconds at most and he reminds her that seconds can be eternities in the mind so it's time they talk mutant to mutant i am not a mutant i'm not natural at all mutants are the oppressors the age of homo superior is waning father i think you will know what i mean says danger uh pissed as shit he has control over her in this situation uh not a natural and yet here you take human form i don't call that much of a leap responds xavier and what do you call a man whose best image of himself still cannot so much as stand up i choose my limitations father you are yours in the end though aren't we all says xavier our limitations if none of us had limitations, what would God do with this time? Meanwhile, in the real world, uh, Xavier is sitting there exhausted with a hatchet in one hand and Danger's severed head in the other. <laughs> I'm sorry, I simply don't want to die, he says to her decapitated head. Uh, he's won until the X-Men show up in one of Reed Richard's ships and he freaks out. The X-Men are about to parachute out with X-shaped parachutes because comic books. And Scott covers his bases saying, uh, hey, Reed, turn this shit off. Keep the systems down until you're clear of Genosha thrust only and um yeah then then get us that the hell out of here uh dangerous head calls chuck a bastard and says the x-men don't really know uh him at all he responds i like to think that gene knew knew and understood which is such an interesting line because gene has died now for either the second or 18th time i can't really keep up she dies a lot um but god damn it's just so interesting that it's like that's such a bullshit scapegoat answer 
where it's just like, oh, yeah, the one person who got me, she's not around. So no one gets me. No one can explain my actions. Like, well, actually, you can fucking try to explain your actions, but you're probably not going to do a very good job since Gene was the only one who knew you so well. Like, I I love that because it just makes him look like such a conniving asshole. And he takes that role of like, oh, I care so much about you guys. I'm going to be this father figure. I take care of you guys. But there, there is a lot of that selfishness, as you can see. Yeah. Um, the the story ends with a giant two page spread, and uh, we talk about the the disaster at Genosha in a story called the E for Extinction by Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley. And uh, the the E is for Extinction. That story is all about a giant sentinel, a giant tri sentinel, three sentinels combined together, killing sixteen million mutants all in like the span of like a, an hour you know like it took no time to do this that's why genosha looks like such a wreck it used to be like a paradise you know like it was magneto's dream realized and so uh there's no technology on the island apparently magneto didn't do enough to disable the sentinel the sentinel is rising from the ocean and ready to fuck up the x-men sean is that how you end an issue i mean jesus these guys can't catch a break they don't get a chance to breathe i mean in these few issues we've seen what four different villains it's crazy i mean as a reader i love it but give him a little lunch or something it's funny too i don't want to like i don't want to put you in a box or anything but i feel like you are just as likely to buy an x-men comic where they fight a giant you know 300 foot tall sentinel or whatever as you are like a comic about them, like going to home Depot in an afternoon. Right. Dude, like, put me in that box because I'm buying <laughs> that home Depot issue 10 times more often. <laughs> I just want to see what kitty picks out at Lowe's with Wolverine. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. What kind of vinyl flooring do you think Wolverine likes? Um, I, I want to see Wolverine stuck in traffic. Yeah. <laughs> That's got to be a thing, right? Like, I don't know. That, that has to be a thing. Um, issue 12 came out August 31st, 2005. The wild tricentinal is powering up and everyone is arguing about what to do to take it out. Uh, when finally at the last possible second, Kitty says, everyone grab me. She phases, protecting them all with her non-corporeal form. She can phase through things. She can like make her molecules like basically turn off. And if she's touching someone, then she can spread that power. But it is super, super duper exhausting. Like she is really feeling it after doing that. The Sentinel rises up. Uh, it's raining hell on Genosha and it looks almost like an angel in its silhouettes. It's got wings, but like an old Testament angel, you know, like one of the super scary ones that like rains down plagues and, and fire and brimstone. And, you know, Oh yeah. Kills, I told you I was a, a lot Catholic of school boy. Sure did. Yeah. So, you know, you're familiar <laughs> yeah. with, with those, the old, uh, was it Seraphim? Yeah. Yeah. That's the images the nuns would use when you were in trouble. Yeah. Uh, that all you got, bub, says Kitty. Uh, there's like a whole bunch of like sort of, I want to say, I want to call them fan moments, right? Where Joss mm-hmm. Whedon, the writer who we really aren't going to talk about too much because he's a piece of shit. Um, but like just does such a good job of like creating little fan service moments like that where like you do see growth because it's like these p- characters are like emulating each other. I don't think it's cheesy in this book at all. I think it like actually shows like you know, Kitty's finally like strong enough and brave enough to feel as badass as Wolverine is presented, you know? And so like, I I think that's actually like a nice moment. Uh, I've yet to get a 
too cheesy, too comic booky feel or notion from any of these things. It's pretty cool. Glad to hear it. Um, the the giant tricentil launches out a hundred million billion fulfilling drones, right? Like these little tiny things. This was called a wild sentinel, and so it was like a program where it was it was supposed to. There was no like blueprint, you know. There was no like factory to to make sentinels, and so it would take like an old car, you know, and like cut up the scrap and like find like a an AK-47 or whatever. And like, that would be called a wild sentinel. Like it would look like a turkey or something, you know, just like with whatever was around. And it would have like a little camera. That's so it badass. could see, you know, like a camcorder or like an iPod camera, you know, like a, a Game Boy Color camera, like whatever it could get its hands on, you know, it would just turn that into a, a cyborg Android mutant murdering machine. And so that's what these are flying out now uh, to attack the X-Men. It's I just see a bunch of Game Boy Color cameras now. We have fully jumped into the early 2000s. <laughs> uh, let's see. Hank is carrying Xavier away from the battlefield because Xavier can't really do a whole lot. He doesn't even have his wheelchair with him. And uh, he doesn't understand why she's doing all these tricks and distractions, uh, keeping her from her ultimate end goal. Like she just wants to kill them. Like why is she sort of like doing all this pageantry around it? Uh, no living being is completely rational, response professor. There's more than her programming at work. There's hate. A new body of danger uh, now with wings shows up and cuts them off. Hank, uh, sorry, a new body of danger now with wings uh, cuts off Hank as he's trying to jump over a ledge. Scott and the other X-Men are trying to contain the Sentinels breaking through their flank when he calls out to Emma, who's walking away randomly from the battlefield towards a secret entrance to some kind of basement. Uh, she talks to a disembodied voice uh, and we realize that this is the one that's been talking to her this entire time. Uh, this is the secret danger was referring to. And the voice says, you won't have to put up with this pathetic facade much longer. Uh, Hank drops the professor so he can fight this new winged body of Angel. And um, he just says uh, he's a cat and she's a bird. And he starts swiping at her, tearing metal from her torso. A gorgeous two-page spread shows all the X-Men fighting these Sentinels. And what it looks like, I'm sorry, when it looks like Scott is about to be taken from behind, a diamond-formed Emma gives it the right hook. Sorry, darling, she said, had to pee. Um... I never thought about that, just like in a giant battle. So funny. How bad do you actually have to pee? Like, we know she's lying, but like just in the context of, of her lie, can you imagine just like an end game? Like the only character I can really imagine doing that is like Ant-Man, like shrinking down to be like super, super small. So no one could see that he had to pee, but like he could get away with it. But besides that, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I just love also how smart these characters are, but they can't come up with a better lie than that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Hank manages to catch the professor before he hits the ground because he is that good. Uh, Kitty realizes they can't do this all day and goes to Colossus asking for a fastball special. Uh, I can do a lot more damage than Logan if I phase through its circuits a couple of times, she says. Colossus rejects, saying it's too dangerous, but she says if that thing powers up again, she can't phase to protect them. Once she promises she'll come back, he relents and throws her up to the head of the Sentinel. Once she's up there, all the smaller Sentinels start returning to try and stop her. Hank is going ham on the winged body of danger, trying to get at the professor. Xavier tells Hank he's not picking up her thoughts, so she's shut down. But Hank has gone full feral, full berserk, and he doesn't even seem remotely human anymore. And this is another awesome John Cassidy panel where he does the storytelling completely with the eyes. You know, like the mouth looks different than than in previous uh, interactions with Hank. And the eyes are just alien at this point. You know, like Absolutely. there's just like nothing human about them. It's so well done. Yeah. It, it's really cool. 
inside the Sentinel, uh, it tells Kitty plainly, if you phase through any of my key systems, I will only reroute them. If you become solid and try to manually shut me down, I will shoot your head off. Uh, Kitty, something of a computer whiz, I guess. Like I think she was, it's like, you know how your parents call you for IT support all the time, <laughs> and it's not like that you're good with computers, it's just that you're not 10,000 years old? Yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. Uh, I think she was like the youngest person at Xavier's, and so like I... I'm willing to bet there are stories where she's like actually doing like wicked computer shit, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. I would love to be corrected if anyone's made it this far into the podcast and can, and can point those ones out. But I really think she's just like the computer was because she was the youngest person at Xavier's when she showed up, you know? Yeah. Um, let's see. Where were we? Uh, she tells the Sentinel to access Mempath 164.3-9 Alpha 6, a pathway that's been blocked by danger when she gave the Sentinel life. The Sentinel says it's from the old Genosha directive and not relevant to what it's currently doing. Then why aren't you supposed to see it? Asks Kitty. Uh, floating back down slave to the X-Men, Kitty explains that it's simple. When danger brought the Sentinel to life, it repressed its memory of killing 16 million mutants because she knew he couldn't handle it. He wasn't a living being when he did that, but he is now. And the human brain can't process what it means to kill 16 million living things, but the Sentinel can. So the Sentinel flies off horrified at its own actions, thinking about what it has done. Everyone is feeling good about the win, except Hank, who looks disgusted with himself for losing it back there. Charles said everyone made him so proud when a completely darkened Cyclops calls him out, saying he knew what he did to danger. Colossus says before he crushed her head, she told him that when the professor upgraded the danger room, she called out to him and asked him, where am I? And that Charles not only heard her, but ignored her. You knew she was alive, says Colossus, and you kept her trapped for years so you could run your experiments. You understand why that is a problem for me, because that's exactly what happened to Colossus in the last story. By the time I realized what happened, Charles responds, I saw no other course. My teams needed to be prepared. Mutant kind needs to be protected, whatever the cost. And it's so funny because that sounds exactly like Agent Brand, who we think of as a bad guy in this situation. Wolverine calls him out saying, what you been doing, prof? Hanging out with Magneto? Because that shit sounds a little too much like him. I can't expect you to forgive what I've done, Charles begins. But you do, don't you? Interjects Scott. We'll come around, right? What does it hurt? The oppression of a new life form? You figure we've taken enough from the sapiens. Why not dish it out to the AI? You know it's not that simple, Scott. You're the man who taught me it was. Emma starts to defend Xavier a little bit because they're actually way more alike than anyone cares to admit. And Scott is just fucking done with her. You know, he's so pissed about her like just leaving in the middle of a fight. Her potty um, Yeah, it happens to the best of us, I guess. Uh, narration boxes appear commenting on the health of their relationship saying nothing lasts forever except hellfire we finally see who emma has been talking to and it's a new version of her old gang the hellfire club uh i want to ask you before i say who it is do you recognize any of those people off off the bat um one looks like johnny depp in that one movie uh that one movie where he was like the native american is what they had him as but he shouldn't have been oh the lone ranger yeah lone ranger yeah um that's the only one <laughs> no i don't recognize any of these guys <laughs> all right uh we see sebastian shaw cassandra nova negasonic teenage warhead in a cloaked figure whom we can't discern uh but more on that on a future episode where we cover the next arc of astonishing x-men in a story called torn we're not going to cover that for a hot minute 
because this story, like this was the predominant X-Men series at the time. Like this was the most popular one. This was like the big, uh, big banging one, but it's not really in continuity. Like everything that happens in the story happens, but it kind of just like happens at its own pace as opposed to keeping pace with other stories. If that makes sense. Right. Did like you say official book, but it's not the most responsive book. Did you say his name was Negasonic Teenage Warhead? Yeah. Why is that not a band name? Uh, well, actually, that's it's a girl, and that's actually the the young teenager in the Deadpool movies. Oh, uh, got it. Looks different. Totally looks different. So I understand not catching that. Very cool. But yes, these guys, the the unveil the mystery there had me be like, okay, next issue, let's go. Yeah. That is one of the most confusing fucking story arcs of all time because it became pretty clear that like this series is just a direct sequel to like the Grant Morrison run from a mm-hmm. couple of years earlier. Okay. And um, I'm going to do my best to break it down simply for you, but it is a little confusing, but I'm excited that we're going to do it together. Me too. But that wraps up uh, the, the danger story overall. Sean, what'd you think? It's hard to unpack all of it. I mean, there's so much action that goes on in these issues. So much action. Like I said, I think we were at four villains before we saw these guys who seem like villains. So that would be like the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth or whatever. There's so <laughs> much stuff that goes on. Um, but it's done in a way where it doesn't seem too overwhelming. I thought it's really cool. The art in these few issues, though are the star. Absolutely. This book, like John Cassie has such an illustrious career and pun intended. Cause like illustrious illustrator. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's his, it's not my favorite book that they've ever worked on, but it's, it might be the best book they've ever worked on. Like just in terms of, of quality of art. Like I think everything in this is just a home run. Uh, I'm, I'm really, really blown away how well this holds up 17 years later. Cause like, I just remember being a kid, you know? And so like looking at the books that came out in 1973, which was, you know, 17 years before I was born, you know, I don't like a lot of the art from 1973. Some of it's like amazing. Sure. Uh, but generally I think this is when comic art started to get consistently pretty good. And then you got people like Cassidy who just knock it out every single time. And it just seems so simple for them, you know, like, like we've talked about before, it was just like the, the minimalism meeting the, like what they choose to pour detail into, like it doesn't look hard. And I think that's the tale. Like that's the story of like a really fucking good artist is that they're able to do something really complicated and make it look so simple. And there's one point that kind of really hit me on his skill. And it was in this last issue when Emma's going into that like dungeon to talk to these shadowy figures on her Mm -hmm. bathroom break. And you're, kind of your mind's stuck wondering and left on a page behind being like, who are those people? And there's stuff going on. But then all of a sudden he draws your intention back in to this spread of all of the X-Men fighting at once, just kicking ass. So without saying anything, without necessarily a ton of narrative going on, he gets you back focused on what's going on now. Like, okay, catch up reader. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think his stuff is so smart. And in this short time has moved up to the top of my ranks. That is 
pretty cool to hear. You, you're so new to comics that you already have a favorite artist. That's awesome. I, I would have to say he's probably it from the little bit that I've read. Very cool. And uh, yeah, Joss Whedon sucks, but um, tells a pretty good story here. You know, got to give credit where it's due. Um, how would you feel if I told you that this is not the last time we see danger? I mean, I would say we need some better IT support. <laughs> perfect, perfect, perfect. Cut it. We're leaving it there. Uh, Sean, do you want people to get in touch with you on social media? Yeah, please. Uh, I am at Sean Inella, I-N-N-E-L-L-A, on Twitter and Instagram, and Inella underscore Ice on Twitch. Catch me streaming a few games here and there. I've taken a little bit of a break because of some work opportunities, but getting back to it hopefully this weekend. So would love if people join along and we can chat about anything, even some of these great episodes of Shortbox Summary. Hey, thank you. Uh, please reach out to at purplebird616 on Twitter. That is where I do most of the uh, audience interaction for this show. I've been doing a lot of Twitter spaces lately and they've been super fun. I've gotten some really, really interesting people into rooms. I've gotten Patrick Zercher, who's an artist we have not talked about yet, but we probably will pretty soon because he drew the fuck out of some amazing Thor stories. We've also got Sam Liu in a couple times, who is like the director of the Planet Hulk and Hulk versus animated films from Marvel and like a dozen DC animated movies like those direct DVD movies you always see at... Uh, the video section at at Walmart and Target and such. Uh, he directs the lion's share of those with a with a co-director. That's awesome. And so it's just been so fun getting like an art class from Patch and then like a, a film class from Sam. And we generally do those on the weekend. So keep your eyes out for the next time one of those happens. And um, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Sean, we'll have you back as soon as we possibly can. I don't yeah, know wait. when we're going to talk about uh, Torn, the next story in the Astonishing X-Men saga, but uh, it will probably be not too far off. That's fine with me. And, you know, even if we just want to do a little bit of chat about uh, 2000s music, fashion, celebrities, romances, I'm there with all of it. Okay, cool, cool. Maybe... We'll finish up X-Men with you, and then you'll just be like our, our Y2K correspondent, our Y2 correspondent. <laughs> yeah. Patching over to Sean and Ella for his take on... Yeah. Paris Hilton's back in the news, and it's not bad news this time. Her <laughs> yeah. and friend Nicole Ritchie have started a new TV show called The Simple Life. Deep, 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 deep. Yeah. Back to you in the studio, George. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Like I said at the top of the show, please consider rating us if you like the show. Uh, give us give us a bad rating if you didn't like this show just say why and then I'll try to correct it on a future episode and then adjust your rating because that's how this works um, Sean I love you thank you so much for being here and, thank you for uh, having me as always can't wait oh, always my guy Laters. later